We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. You're listening to Founder Stories with Anouk and Barack. Brought to you by F2 Capital in partnership with IDC International Radio and No Camels. In the context of innovation, in the context of entrepreneurship, questioning, challenging, being creative is creating that chaos, being capable of dealing with a chaotic situation is much more critical than a very structured, organized way. Hi, and welcome to Founder Stories. Today on the show, Inbal Arieli talks about how Startup Nation starts at the playground, why we should be optimistic for women in tech, and how Balagan breeds success in a world where the only constant is change. Inbal, it's great to be here with you. And we're sitting in front of your book, Chutzpah. How did you have the Chutzpah to write a book and try to publish it? Actually, it's a great question because um, I never thought of myself as a writer. And I never had a dream, actually, to write a book. But what happened, and this is a true story, and it's actually maybe the, the first time I'm telling it, is that I was uh, interviewed on stage in the U.S. at a big conference. And I was, you know, being asked all these questions about the Israeli um, ecosystem and uh, the entrepreneurial world here in Israel. And I gave what was, in my opinion, um, a fresh angle to it. And when I came off stage, people started asking me, where can they read more? There was nothing to read. It was all in my head. So the first person I said, um, you know what? We can switch emails. The second person I said, let's have a coffee. And then by the fifth person, I didn't have what to say. So I just told, you know what? I think I'll write a book about it. And that was in October 2013. And well, five years plus later, the book is coming out. So what was that process? Where do you start when you want to write a book? It's relatively similar to the life cycle of a startup, I would say, in many ways, especially for someone who's coming from these worlds. And you start with validating your ideas. So you have this concept, you have this thesis in mind, which you think is great, but now you have to make sure that people find it interesting. So what I started doing was writing on a blog, just taking the concepts and the ideas I had and in uh, like a, an MVP, just like we do with products. but this time with, with ideas, with things I wanted to write about. And I started writing and, and validating the ideas and the thoughts and the thesis I had with other people through the blog and through their reactions, understanding what's interesting and what's you know, less compelling and what makes sense, and then collecting a lot of feedback and more ideas from so many people who wanted to share their views on it. And that's how it started. And for the first two years, I only wrote the blog and articles on different um, media platforms. And that's when I realized there's enough material for writing the book, went into deeper research because a book requires much deeper research than just uh, you know, short articles on a blog. And the result is here in front of you. The book is called Chutzpah, Why Israel is a Hub of Innovation and Entrepreneurship. So give us the elevator pitch. Why is Israel a hub of innovation and entrepreneurship? And what is Chutzpah? When you ask this question, the typical answer you get is several reasons. And people mostly mention the military as a differentiator that Israel has. The, the role that the military plays in our lives, both as a melting pot of diversity, people from different backgrounds, technology, that's all true. 
But in my opinion, it all starts much, much earlier than that. It's not a magical moment that happens at the age of 18 when we join the military. It's actually a result of a toolbox that we're equipped with from a very young age. And that's what Chutzpah is all about, Chutzpah the book. It's about actually the childhood journey from a very, very young age, as young as two or three. And through childhood in Israel, adolescence, teenage years, the military service, and also the big trip after the military. So tell us about that. What does a child at age of two or age of five or age of eight in Israel get that a child in Sweden or the U.S. or China is not getting to make up for that special sauce, which is called chutzpah? I think the main thing, if I had to, to choose one ingredient, would be much more freedom. And that has a lot into it. And maybe more than what we get is what we don't get. And I'll, let me provide an example. So let's take a typical playground, a typical slide, the same structure all over the world, right? Um, there's the ladder, there's the slide, they all look the same. Now, if you look at three, four-year-old kids, I don't know, I at that age grew up in Switzerland myself. And I remember the first day at school there uh, where the kindergarten teacher took me by the hand and showed me the, the, you know, the playground and kind of guided me. So she didn't tell me exactly what to do, but, but she guided me through the process. And she showed me the, I didn't speak French nor English, so she had to show me with, with you know, hand gestures. And she showed me there was the ladder, so I was supposed to go up the ladder, climb the ladder. But there was a kid in front of me, so she kind of, you know, made a sign with her hands for me to pause. And only when the kid was up the ladder, that was my cue. That was when I was supposed to go up the ladder. And, and then the kid uh, went down the slide, and that was my sign now to go down the slide. And there was a very structured harmon- process. Very structured, but, but very, by the way, pleasant. And, you know, as a kid, it was, it was great. It was just having fun at a playground. In a, in a, yeah, in a structured, like a classical music, right, rhythm to it. Now, imagine four o'clock in the afternoon, an Israeli playground, any playground here in Israel. We don't have to imagine. We live it yeah. every day. <laughs> and you have young kids, Including right? this morning. <laughs> yes. Perfect. So just think of your son or daughter, I don't know. Both. Both, okay. Going to the playground with their friends. Same slide, same structure, same architecture, right? But same purpose. But a completely different way of using it, of playing And what's different is the way you react. So the way the environment reacts to what they're doing. Most probably you will not guide them here in Israel on how to use the slide. They will just, you know, one will jump off the slide and one will climb the slide and jump from the ladder and everything will happen simultaneously. And if the first example was uh, classical music, then this is more like uh, jazz impro. Or rock. It's interesting because we are, you know, Barack is from the U.S. and I'm from Belgium. We're raising our kids here. They are sabras. They're Israelis. But in the kindergarten, the kindergarten teacher is always telling me, your kid is not European. Stop telling him that he needs to say hello, that he needs to say thank you. And I said, what do you mean? He doesn't need to say hello and thank you. And she said, no. Why does he have to say hello and thank you? He just needs to be a child. He doesn't need to say hello to every adult. He, he, he can just be himself and do whatever he wants. And she's always cautioning me about my Europeanness. And for me, it's, you know, going back to Europe is like a breath of fresh air. It's like you said, you know, things are organized and people are civilized and they don't honk at each other like crazy in the street and they let each other pass. And here it is, you know, it's a madhouse. Is it 
worth it? Well, in my opinion, it's definitely worth it. And let me give you an example. So I also lived in Brussels for five years, and I went to school there from the age of 10 to 15. And when I went to school in Brussels, so when the teacher came into the class, we had to stand up, right? We never called the teacher by the first name. Of course not. Of course not, right? And there was this respect, distance between the kid and their teacher. Deference. Exactly. It's not just respect, right? It's more than that. It's distance uh, uh, um, and difference and, and alienation even. It works. You have great uh, um, students and great accomplishments in, in, in these schools. But what's happening here in schools is completely different. So in a classroom in Israel, let's assume you have kids as statistically as smart as kids in, in Brussels. And I really believe that statistically. I mean, you have the same amount of uh, smart people here as everywhere else in the world. But the way they're taught to think is completely different. And they're taught to ask a lot of questions, and they're taught to question everything and to challenge. And that's not regarded as disrespect here. An example I can give you is from a study comparing Israeli 14-year-old kids in math and Singaporean ones. Same age, same accomplishments, same level of math. And they were given a, a math question. The Singaporean kids overperformed the Israeli ones. More of them knew the answer, solved the equation. But here's something interesting. All of the Singaporean kids solved it in one way, the way they were taught to solve it. From the Israelis, less solved it, but in 14 different ways. Hmm. Now, which is better? I don't think there's one better way than the other. It really depends on, you know, the final outcome you're looking at. In the context of innovation, in the context of entrepreneurship, questioning, challenging, being creative is creating that chaos, being capable of dealing with a chaotic situation is much more critical than a very structured, organized way. Inbal, I was thinking about exactly this this morning. I mean, our, our nanny canceled. And 10 other things happened before we even got to this interview. And I thought to myself, you know, Inbal talks a lot about balagan and chaos, and we should just embrace it. And if we really thought to cancel, but I thought if anybody would understand what's happening, it'd be you. Totally. I mean, I think that when you look at the future of your kids, the only certain thing is that we don't know how their future will look like. We don't know what positions they will hold. We don't know what skills they will need. I mean, the only thing that we know is that we actually don't know, right? So it's very difficult to prepare them to what we don't know we should prepare them for. And once you embrace that, you're much more, you know, free to just equip them with the right skills rather than knowledge and, and expertise. Let me ask you something. In the early 1900s, there was talk of establishing a home for the Jews in Uganda, it's actually modern-day modern Kenya. And I wonder, would that have led to the same level of success? Or is there something unique to this specific location where we're sitting? Well, I think that the geopolitical situation, I, I would say, uh, definitely contributes to our chaotic life. But definitely the fact that we are isolated in so many ways. The same applies for the startups in Israel. The fact that they're isolated from the markets requires them to think global and actually kind of skip the, the neighborhood. So the same thing happens 
in terms of influence because of that geopolitical situation in so many different ways. And the fact that Israeli kids are, from a very young age, used to, you know, sirens and, I mean, terror attacks, unfortunately. A little so many different things, than Switzerland and Belgium. A little different than Switzerland and Belgium. By the way, what, what brought you there? Why, why did you grow up there? Uh, my dad was a diplomat, so we traveled a lot. Uh-huh. But I'm born and raised... As an Israeli, I'm born here and raised as an Israeli forever. And um, even when we, we were there, we were an Israeli family in, in, in Belgium. And, and for me, walking the streets of Brussels or Geneva, that was very stressful because everything was so, you know, organized and like so quiet and calm and, and, and like it wasn't pleasant to my ears, you see. Now, it's, it's all a matter of habits, just getting used to a, a certain volume In life absolutely I think volume is the is the right word I was actually doing a meditation this morning and it was all about sound it was about just listening to all the sounds around you and not judging them and it was very interesting because there was the sound of the birds and there was the sound of a baby crying which at first I thought was my baby and then there was a the sound of all the construction going on in Tel Aviv and it's about learning to just to With curiosity, notice all these sounds and just go from one to the other. But talking about Israel, there is definitely a, a sound here. You notice it even more actually when you're outside of Israel and there's Israelis traveling and visiting. So when we as as European Jews used to go to these fancy resorts and then suddenly there was a group of Israelis, we would be so... ashamed of the big balagan the balagan the noise the what we saw as impoliteness impudence uh, just kind of assuming that everything should should go you know that they can do anything they want and at the time we saw it as kind of you know animals uh, now <laughs> now that I live here and uh, you know I, I, I start to and understand your, your kids are becoming these and animals. my kids are becoming these animals you know my grandmother is coming from Belgium and she's such a you know she's like perfect looking and she's always uh, well dressed and polite and you know and she's looking at my kids and I'm thinking oh my god you know am I doing something wrong but then I also see the unbelievable amount of freedom that they feel to just you know tell Barack and I what they want and tell us in a way that we don't necessarily like but that's just you know they, they really do have that freedom just to be who they want to be and they have that kind of confidence so you have three boys how do you raise them is it just a huge chaotic balagan in your house all the time well depending on who's looking at the situation maybe for some people it looks like a chaotic balagan. We have three boys, a 17-year-old, a 14-year-old, and a 10-year-old. It's a regular home, but the kids, yes, are allowed um, to bring their friends whenever they want and to go to their friends whenever they want, even the 10-year-old. Um, they walk alone to school and they come back by themselves. They learn from a very young age to prepare food for themselves, although, of course, we cook and we have family dinners, but we also let them be responsible for what they want to eat. And by the way, when you do that, it doesn't mean that a kid, you know, always wants to eat, I don't know, sweets. They, they become much more responsible by allowing them to take responsibility over themselves. And your 17-year-old will go to the Army soon. And I saw you recently wrote about the college admission scandal mm. in the U.S. and how American parents will do anything to get their kid into the elite Ivy League school. 
And here in Israel, we have the elite units of the army, uh, which can maybe set up a kid for, for his career for life in Israel. So that's how they're similar. How, how are they different? The submission process is different in the sense that the parent's influence is extremely limited up to non-existent at all. Because once these kids at 17 and a half start their admission to the military and the process, the screening process to the, to the military different units, your position as a parent doesn't count at all. You're not even, by the way, you're not even part of the process. You cannot come with your kid to these interviews. There's nothing to write in advance, like in the U.S., that there were a lot of stories where the, the parents used to write the essays for their kids. All of that doesn't exist here. So the process itself is designed in a different way, which minimizes the possibility of influence of the parents. Different positions, different units in the Israeli military have created these screening methodologies, which are focused on lightening the potential, what the kids could do. And that opens the door to so many kids from so many different places that have not had the privilege to go to the best schools in Israel. So you were an officer in 8200, which is an elite intelligence unit. You say the army is really about fostering the potential within essentially children, 17, 18-year-olds in many ways are still children. How did it light up your potential? What did you do there? So in my case, 8200 is the equivalent of the NSA. At the age of 18, you know nothing about intelligence. You have no idea even what to expect, right? You don't know what it means. You just graduated from high school and you were busy with your prom and, and I don't know, partying and maybe a little studying, but that's it. So you don't know what to expect. And what I did uh, personally, um, without going into too much details, I was responsible for a team of 15 other people. I would say in the forefront of Israel's um, intel efforts back then, so 20-something years ago. In my case, it was mostly dealing with um, threats coming from Syria back then. That's, that's all I can say. And if you're asking what I've learned there, um, so at the age of 19, managing a team of 15 people with challenges and missions and tasks that are way beyond you know, what we think we could achieve, but then there's no other choice. We have to solve them. Managing a group of people, um, some of which are older than I am. I was 19. Some of them were in their 20s. Men and women? Men and women, of course. Super smart, all of them. You're definitely not the smartest person in the room. And you start practicing your leadership skills. You start practicing your team capabilities, your teamwork capabilities. You understand that you're not given authority because of symbols or a certain certification that you've gone through. That's just the formal part. But when you're 19 and they're 20 or 18, you practically know the same. So it's not about a teacher, going back to our example, a teacher in a classroom with this gap between the teacher and the kids. You have to gain authority in a completely different way. And that's the essence of the Israeli military. It's how do you position these leaders, which by the way, in Israel, another interesting thing, fact from the Israeli military, all officers in the Israeli military, all officers have started as regular soldiers. 
So in the US or in the UK or in France, the system is designed in a different way where you have the regular soldiers and you would have the officers track. Officers would most probably be academics. They most probably not have real military experience before they became officers. In Israel, it's completely different. So the chief of staff in the Israeli military started as a regular soldier. Everyone starts as a regular soldier. And then after a while, you, you're identified for your skills, for your leadership skills. You know, it all sounds so great. Could it be adopted? Is national service a good thing for every country? It doesn't necessarily have to be a military organization. So let's take uh, the Red Cross, for example, um, an organization that exists all over the world and in Israel also, which is based on volunteers by design all over the world. In Israel, 64% of the volunteers in the Red Cross, in Magen David Adom, are under the age of 18, or between the ages of 15 and 18. Now, you could say, okay, great, so we have these teenagers that are now volunteering in the Red Cross, but they know nothing, they're, they're really young, so we'll let them, I don't know, file documents. No, so in Israel, these teenagers that are high school students, and that they're volunteering, they're going on a course, they're spending a lot of hours volunteering, they go actually in the ambulances, helping the ambulance driver, who is a paramedic, in the field. And they're doing actual life-saving work on a daily basis. They don't file documents. Now, that's the way you can create impact and you can give them responsibility and authority and meaning. It doesn't have to be a military uh, organization. You wrote recently for Israel's 70th anniversary, a profile of Israel's 70 most impactful people in the tech ecosystem. One of your uh, interests in, in, in the survey was also to highlight the success of, of women in the ecosystem in Israel. And it's a challenge because women are dramatically underrepresented in the ranks of founders of top startups. So I wonder, first of all, to get the number of women you needed, did you apply the same standard as to the men, or did you apply a different standard? Totally same standard. And this is a, an argument I've been having for many years with my uh, colleagues in the ecosystem. So um, in 2010, I started um, the 8200 Entrepreneurship and Innovation Support Program, which was back then, together with the Junction, uh, um, the first accelerators in Israel. And along the years, we've had a relatively low number of, of women participating. And I think it was 2015 or 2016 where we had an entire cohort with no one female founder in it. And it was all over the press and the media. And, and we got all these very negative, of course, comments. And then I said, guys, guys and girls, we are applying the exact same standard of, on everyone. And this year, there weren't good enough female candidates that applied to be admitted. But the standards are the same across the board. And it's so important, in my opinion, to have the same standards. Because otherwise, what does that mean for the, the women who have participated or that will participate in the future in that specific program? I'm very much in favor of specific programs for female entrepreneurs. I think it's an important support group for them, a support community for them to have. But that cannot be limited to only that. The world is, is different than just, you know, female entrepreneurs meeting together. And I think it's critical to apply the same standards across the board for everyone. So why aren't more women climbing the ranks? 
Well, A, there are more and more women climbing the ranks. Um, So if you would look at the numbers um, in the past decade, you would definitely see a growth. Five or seven or 10 years ago, it would have been 5% female founders, 95% men. Today, the numbers are different. They're about almost 20 to 80. And that's a huge change. Hmm. It takes time. Israeli numbers are similar to the Silicon Valley. It's a global problem all over the world, but I'm very optimistic. I definitely see the change. I see it happening over the course of the past years. So I think that when we'll meet again in 10 years, the numbers would be completely different. Synthesis focuses on leadership assessment and training based on best practices from the IDF. I find it fascinating, especially at the early stage of a startup, you have soft factors. You don't have a lot of revenue or other numbers. What are you applying there? What are the techniques? So we're focusing on two elements, the assessment part and the development part. In the assessment part, we're focusing exactly like I said earlier in the Israeli military on potential. So based on limited information that we have about the candidates that we are assessing, which they are providing, by the way, and we're focusing only on what they are providing us, um, and a tool that we created, which is based on narrative psychology, We're capable of assessing them remotely without them meeting the person who's assessing them based only on what they've written to us. So that's one part. And there we're looking at what we think are the most critical leadership elements, self-awareness, openness to communication, and dealing with ambiguity, which we think for the future, these are the most important soft skills. I think it's, it's a sign of the future, and we're going to hear a lot more about synthesis and applying these type of techniques. Um, I know we're trying to you know, employ them at our firm, uh, so maybe we'll do a follow-up on that. Sure. <laughs> I would love <laughs> Great. to. Great. Thank okay. you. Inval, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Founder Stories is brought to you by F2 Capital in partnership with IDC International Radio and No Camels. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast app. <laughs>